Well, thank you for coming to this course on interpreting the end times. I gave it that kind of title to kind of lure people uh, to this. Although that's what it's all about. I mean, it does describe what we're going to do in the next 12 weeks. So, um, what we'll be doing is that we'll be spending time looking at the biblical texts, looking at how we're supposed to interpret them, how, you know, what are the clues in the Bible as to how we're supposed to interpret them to get a big picture of the end times. And then also, another thing that we're going to do is that we're going to look at how other Christians will interpret these texts and put together a different picture of the end times than the one I'll be teaching here. The one I'll be teaching, I'll just give you give it away. All of you know basically where I stand on this anyway. Um, I believe that God means what he says. Okay, that really helps to put faith in what he says. If you don't know, if he doesn't mean what he says, before you can put faith in what he says, you have to figure out what he means. Do you, do you understand? Like, if I don't mean what I'm telling you right now, and you need to put faith in what I'm telling you, then you can't put faith in what I'm saying. You have to kind of decipher what I'm saying. What does he really mean by that, you would ask? And then you would try to arrive at my meaning, and then you would have to put faith in that meaning. Do you understand that? So I think that's daft. I think that's silly. I don't think God communicates that way. So I think God wants you to have faith. In fact, I know that God wants you to have faith. In fact, you can't please God without faith. That's if I've interpreted that verse correctly, (laughs) of course. Um, So that brings me to an understanding of prophecy and of the end times, which goes by the name, a big long name of of dispensational premillennialism. And I'm going to explain all of these, but, but there it is right out there to basically let you know where I stand. Uh, but there are other people, many of them in the scholarly community, who think that if you are a believer in that view, that premillennial view, that uh, you must also be a member of the Flat Earth Society, or, um, you know, there must be something wrong with you, something wrong with your thinking and... and uh, you know, you are to be pitied. Uh, but one thing you aren't to, uh, to be allowed to do is you can't be taken seriously. So, uh, many scholars that hold these different views that I will be introducing you to in just a minute, uh, they will think that, uh, well, poor old benighted Hennebury and the poor people that he's teaching there, uh, they're being led astray by this wooden, literal interpretation of the Bible and and that's not really what God intended. There's a much more spiritual way of interpreting the, interpreting the Bible which, um, you know, doesn't get us carried away with speculation and so on. This is how they view it. So, looking at the, the uh, 12 weeks here, the outline. Today is introduction and definitions. Uh, 
Next week, we're going to deal with actually how to interpret the Bible. What is the, the way to approach biblical prophecy? How are we to interpret it? Are, to we, are we to use a different set of interpretative tools than we would if we were interpreting John 3.16, for example. Uh, I think the answer to that is no, but there are many Christians, particularly in the scholarly community, who would say yes. You have to use a different set of interpretative uh, rules in order to get to the meaning of, of prophecies and so on. So how to interpret prophecy, that's one of the things we're going to look at next week. We're also going to look at next week uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a perennial problem. I don't think it's a problem, but it's a perennial problem for many Christians. Does the Old Testament set the stage for what happens in the New Testament and therefore can we see the New Testament simply as a continuation of the storyline that has been set up in the Old Testament with the inclusion of the church as a new thing, of course, but not not uh, redirecting the, the story. Or does the New Testament in a sense reinterpret the Old Testament? If the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, then what you have to do is you have to read the New Testament first, find out what you think that means, and then when you've got your interpretation of the New Testament, then you take that and you go back into the Old Testament and you reinterpret the Old Testament. Do you see that? So which is it? Well, I hope, yes. In, in, in my view, it's the, it's the former. But again, in the view of many scholars that I'll be reading and talking to you about, you have to interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. If that sounds, again, very silly, because you, you actually think the Bible, although it's made up of 66 different books, is actually one book, okay, by one author and it's a good idea to read it from the beginning to the end, that if you think that it's dumb to go three, three quarters of the way through a book and read the end of it and then decide to interpret what came before that with what you read at the end, you know, I'm with you. I think it really helps when you're reading a book and it doesn't matter what kind of book it is. It can be a Dickens novel, it can be a scientific textbook, it can be a devotional, or it can be the Bible. A good idea is to start at the beginning, read the right, right through to the end to get the storyline. Okay? Once you've mastered that, certainly you can go into the other books and study them in, in more depth. But if you want to get the storyline of the book... You have to read it from beginning to end. That's my view. And then another thing that we'll do next week is uh, we will have to ask this very important question. Do you interpret the 
prophecies of the Bible by the first coming of Christ or by the second coming of Christ. That's going to be a very, very important question. Okay? Uh, if I can read to you something that somebody said here, if I can, it's, it's actually, I didn't have it marked, but I know it's here somewhere. Uh, one writer is very clear. He says this. This is a, a, a writer who I wouldn't agree with. It's called Anthony Hokima. He was a, a a well-known scholar. And he says this, the most important day in history is not the second coming of Christ, which is still future, but the first coming which lies in the past. Okay? What he means by that is that because the first coming of Christ is more important than the second coming of Christ, and much more was accomplished at the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, it means that the prophecies of the Bible point more to the first coming of Christ and should be interpreted on the basis of the first coming of Christ rather than these prophecies pointing to the second coming of Christ and being interpreted on the basis of that second coming. Are you following me? If you take the stance that you interpret the Bible and interpret the prophecies based on the first coming of Christ, you are going to have to uh, reinterpret a lot of the Old Testament. Because those prophecies in the Old Testament, you know about uh, the restoring of the Davidic throne, the glorification of Israel and its, and its redemption, that didn't happen at the first coming of Christ. So what you're going to have to do if you think that prophecy is fulfilled is that you're going to have to go and reinterpret all of those prophecies. And many of those prophecies, as those of you know who took my covenants course, are undergirded by covenants that God made. So it kind of gets serious that way because if God doesn't mean what he says in covenants, then when does he mean what he says? And that we will uh, we'll have to talk about. All right, week three. Covenant theology and dispensational theology. These are the two different, mainly, I mean there are other variations. But these are mainly the two competing overarching views of how to read the Bible. So we'll look at what covenant theology teaches and why it teaches it and why it has a certain approach to the end times and how it can only accept certain understandings of the end times because it has already uh, built into it uh, interpretations that fit it. Okay? and mine doesn't fit it. Or what's called dispensational theology, and what I would call biblical covenantalism, and how that uh, produces the view of the end times that we will be commending and believing here. At least I hope we'll all be believing it. Week five, sorry, week four, 
Uh, our millennialism, which I'm going to explain here tonight, post-millennialism, which I'll also explain. Uh, week five, covenant and historic premillennialism, which I'll also give you basic definitions of. And then six, dispensational premillennialism. Those are looking through the different approaches that people take, that Christians have taken to the end times. Um, what you will be tempted to think in those weeks is, well, this is all pointless. Who, who can interpret the Bible right? Because one person interprets it, this, interprets it this way and another person interprets it that way. And so what's the point? Don't, uh, don't fear, don't uh, worry about it. If you just believe that God means what he says, you will see through most of these other views and say, well, hold on a minute, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. They're, they're making it say that. Okay? But it doesn't say that. I'm going to give you an example tonight. Then we will look at the covenants. Week 7, then we'll look at the kingdom of God. And we'll also ask the question, is Jesus Christ on the throne today? Is he on the throne of David now? Uh, is he reigning now? And again, again, I, I don't mind just telling you my answer. If he is, he's doing a rotten job. Okay? Then we'll look at Israel, Israel in the New Testament. When you come across Israel, the word Israel or, or Jacob in the New Testament, what does it mean? Does it sometimes mean the nation of Israel or the people of Israel? Does it sometimes mean the land of Israel? And does it sometimes mean the church? Or does it never mean the church? We're going to look at that. Then we'll look at uh, the Antichrist. We will ask, uh, is he a he? Or is he a system? Or is this a system? And um, how has the Antichrist been understood in Christian history? A little bit of that. And then what does the Bible say about the Antichrist? Uh, week 11... We'll talk about the tribulation. Are we in the tribulation now? Or is the tribulation ahead? How long is the tribulation? What is the tribulation? And uh, does the Antichrist bear any um, connection with the tribulation or with Israel? And then in week 12, we will be asking the question about the rapture, the rapture of the church, the taking out of the church. When does that happen? Does it happen before Christ comes back? Does it happen? Um, and does it happen before? Sorry, the uh, does it before before the tribulation? Of course, if we're in the tribulation, then we've already answered that question because the rapture hasn't happened yet. So, do we believe that the tribulation is future? If we do, we probably will believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that is that the church is taken out before that period of tribulation, or we might believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, the church goes halfway through the tribulation and then it's taken out before the bad stuff, really bad stuff happens, 
Or we might believe in the pre-wrath rapture. New kid on the block, but uh, an important view. That we go nearly all the way through the the, uh, tribulation and we just kind of get out before God pours his wrath on the earth prior to the second coming. Or are we post-tribulationists? And uh, that can mean all kinds of different things. It can either mean that uh, we believe in a future tribulation and the church goes all the way through the tribulation and is raptured at the end of it. Or if we believe we're in the tribulation now, we can also believe that we're post-tribulational because at the end of that tribulation we'll get raptured and, you know, new heavens and new earth and it will all end up that way, you see. So there are different ways to understand the rapture and we'll be picking through those. Don't worry, I'll be guiding you through all of these things and we will be reading the scriptures to see what the scriptures say. And then we'll be looking at what other scholars say the scriptures are supposed to mean. So do you want, are you okay with that? Okay, are you ready for a couple of examples here? All right, let me see. Now I'll lose my page. <laughs> Let me just uh, find my page here. I had it marked. Just give me a second here. Because I turned to that, that first second coming quote. I lost the other quote that I'd... Uh, put down here, but I'll, one, one second and I'll find it. Oh yeah, here we are. So again, this is Anthony Hokima, and uh, if you'll read, if you, you'll open your Bibles to Revelation 20, Revelation 20, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And it goes on. Okay? Okay, here's his, his little summary of what he thinks that teaches. See if you can follow this. The amillennial position on the thousand years of Revelation 20 implies that Christians who are now living are enjoying the benefits of the millennium since Satan has been bound for the duration of this period. So Satan's bound right now, okay? Because we're in, we're in uh, the millennium. 
As we saw, the fact that Satan is now bound does not mean that he is not active in the world today, but that during this period he cannot deceive the nations, that is, cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. The binding of Satan during this era, in other words, makes missions and evangelism possible. This fact should certainly be a source of encouragement to the church on earth. Our millennialists also teach that during this same thousand year period, the souls of believers who have died are now living and reigning with Christ in heaven while they await the resurrection of the body. Their state is therefore a state of blessedness and happiness, though their joy will not be complete until their bodies have been raised. This teaching should certainly bring comfort to those whose dear ones have died in the Lord. Okay, so the second part of what he believes Revelation 20 means is that Christians who have died are reigning now, but they are just souls. They, they don't have their bodies, okay? They have to wait for the, um, the resurrection to get their bodies, okay? Let's read verses uh, 4 and following. Well, basically four and five of Revelation 20. I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. All right. So let's, again, let's go through now what this scholar is saying about Revelation 20. You've got Revelation 20 in front of you, so you can see whether what he says actually matches up, or maybe you've got a question mark about whether it matches up with with what you're reading in the Bible, okay? You say, well, what do you believe? I'll tell you what I believe as we go through. The millennial position He says, this is page 181 of uh, the meaning of the millennium. The amillennial position on the thousand years of Revelation 20 implies that Christians are now living, uh, sorry, who are now living are enjoying the benefits of this millennium since Satan has been bound for the duration of this period. Okay, so he's saying we're in the millennium. And Satan is bound now. All right. Question. How long is a millennium? A thousand years. How long has it been since Jesus ascended back to heaven? Nearly 2,000 years. So straight away you're going to see that he doesn't mean, when he says millennium, which means thousand years, he doesn't mean a thousand years. 
even though actually you'll read in Revelation 20 the term 1,000 years reoccurs six times. Well, five times it occurs and it reoccurs. Five times. Six times in one chapter it's repeated, 1,000 years. He thinks that 1,000 years is at least 2,000 years. And who knows, it could, you know, if Jesus doesn't come back for another 500 years or 1,000 years, it could be 3,000 years. It doesn't matter. Really, what God meant to say when he said 1,000 years six times is he meant to say about 2,000 years plus. All right? And you're supposed to get that. Okay? You're supposed to be in the know and just get that. Alright? Further, he says, we are enjoying the benefits of the millennium. Are you enjoying the benefits of the millennium right now? Okay? You are, actually, according to him. Um, Why are we, why? Well, because Satan is bound. Satan is bound. But, you think, well, hold on a minute, That I know that can't be true, but he is going to qualify it. He's going to say, um, as we saw, the fact that Satan is now bound does not mean that he cannot deceive the nations. That is, cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. Okay? Now, it does say in verse 3 of Revelation 20, look at it, that Satan... <coughs> should not deceive the nations till the thousand years were finished. Okay? When it says deceive the nations, what do you think it means? I think it means deceive the nations, quite honestly. That's what I think it means. And what Satan, what does Satan do when he deceives the nations? According to 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world, who is Satan, Okay, has blinded the eyes of people that won't believe. Okay, And he uses different techniques and t- different stories and different religions and different excuses and so on to blind the eyes of people uh, that don't believe. But what Hokima has said here, or Hokima, uh, he says that uh, by deceiving the nations no more, all that means is that that Satan doesn't stop the spread of the gospel. Okay. Do you think Satan is stopping the, having something to do with stopping the spread of the gospel today? I mean, it's not easy to spread the gospel, is it? Um, if it's not easy, in fact, it's hard to spread the gospel today but Satan is bound, okay, but Satan's influence is, is not involved in the uh, prevention of people believing the gospel, what on earth stopping people believing the gospel? And quite honestly, why bound, bind Satan and, and put him in prison or just bind him anyway? You don't need to. Because people aren't believing it anyway, are they? It's hard enough anyway 
So Satan, he might be bound, but he's having a great old time of it, just watching people go to hell. He doesn't need to stop people believing the gospel. They're not believing it. So equating, do you see, the binding of Satan as simply Satan's influence in, in uh, not stopping the spread of the gospel, to me, appears to be silly. It also seems to be against what the passage is saying, because it doesn't just say that Satan is bound, does it? It also says that he's shut up, verse 3, and that his prison is sealed. He's shut up in a bottomless pit. Okay? Doesn't it say that? It says he's bound in verse 2, but it doesn't stop in verse 2. He's bound, okay, so if, if, if uh, an angel was come to, to come to you, bind you, that would be bad, okay? That would be worse than, than somebody, you know, expert jailer binding Houdini. I think an angel would do a better job. He'd make sure you were well bound, okay? But it's not just that Satan is bound. Then he's in the bottomless pit. And then he's shut up in the bottomless pit. And then a seal is set over the bottomless pit. So if he gets out of the bottomless pit, people will know because the seal's been broken. That's the picture. It's not just that he's bound. But you see, this guy, along with people that hold his position only talk about the fact that he's bound. The rest of it is as if it needn't have been said. The fact that he's imprisoned and uh, there's a, a, a seal set over the top and so on. He's shut up. He's, 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 uh, it's like being put in um, a mine shaft, okay, and that mine shaft being closed and then sealed. And there you are, you're bound, you're in a mine shaft, and it's sealed, and, uh, you, sorry, it's, it's, it's got a top over it, and then that top is sealed. That's the picture here, is it not? So, it doesn't just mean that, that Satan doesn't have influence in the spread of the gospel. Satan doesn't have any influence, according to this passage, at all. Nil, nada, anywhere. But if Satan is bound now, I have a question. Why do I need to put on the armour of God? In fact, what on earth is Peter doing in First Peter chapter 5? Because in First Peter chapter 5, as you all know, he says in verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Well, why is he warning us about an adversary and saying he's like a roaring lion, walking about? If you bind a lion, he can't walk around anywhere. If you put a lion in a mine shaft, then he's not going anywhere he's, and you don't need to be bothered with him. You just put him in a six-foot pit, like hunters do, and he's not going to bother you. 
But we're warned about Satan. And yet what we're told here by Dr. Hakima is that Satan is bound, but that binding, all it means is that it makes missions and evangelism possible. That's all that that means in Revelation 20. But he doesn't talk about missions or evangelism in this passage in Revelation 20. And missions and evangelism is fraught with difficulty, as many people know. They're in prison because they have evangelized. They're in prison because they've given somebody a Bible. They're being tortured or they're being uh, separated from their families, sometimes killed, oftentimes killed because of this. But this isn't what Revelation 20 is talking about. It's talking about God through an, a powerful angel seizing Satan and stopping his activity completely for a thousand years. And how does he do that? Binds him and puts him in the bottomless pit, puts a cover over it and seals the cover and that's it for Satan. Until later on, after the thousand years, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison. Do you see? Notice it doesn't say that he's, he is going to be unbound. I'm not saying he's not going to be unbound, but that's not what the passage says. The passage emphasizes not the binding of Satan, but the imprisonment of Satan. So he's focusing on the wrong thing. We shouldn't be focusing, if we're looking at this text, at the binding of Satan merely. We should be uh, looking at the imprisonment, the confinement of Satan. And it's only after the thousand years that Satan is released from his incarceration. Am I reading into this text or is that what the text says? So, why is this man, a very capable scholar and a godly man, why is he not reading the text for what it says? Well, it's because he has an approach to the end times, an approach to prophecy, an approach to the interpretation of scripture that allows him to take what the text of scripture is actually saying and make it say something he wants it to say. But he says more, doesn't he? Because he also says that our millennialists also teach that during the same thousand year period, the souls of believers who have died are now living and reigning with Christ in heaven while they await the resurrection of the body. So, so he believes that a person, a Christian that dies, is now reigning with Christ in an incorporeal body on an incorporeal way, a soul. But he's reigning with Christ, which means Christ is reigning now too. Okay? Now, I said, I said before, and uh, I just, you know, don't want to be, uh, I'm not being blasphemous because I don't mean it. I don't believe this. But if Jesus is reigning now and he's got all this help with people who are helping him reign, 
They are doing an absolutely atrocious job of it. Especially these people that were down here, okay, know what it's like down here and know what needs sorting out. What are they doing about it? Doesn't appear to be a lot of raining going on up there as far as sorting things out, okay? Who, according to Revelation 20, verses 4 and following, who are the ones that reign with Christ? Is it people that die now and go and um, go to heaven? No, actually, these people are beheaded. And they're beheaded for a reason. They're beheaded because they wouldn't worship the beast or his image, or receive his mark on their foreheads and on their hands. That's very specific, is it not? Now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, your loved ones are up in glory. They're just not reigning, okay? Why are they reigning? Well, because I don't think anybody's loved one here was decapitated, although Christians are beheaded but nobody here has uh, you know had a beast that they uh, they had to worship or taken an image of a beast that that uh, they worship or received a mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand it's not talking about anybody in the church age it's talking about people who actually were under threat of death in this way at some point, past or future. And we haven't got to uh, the interpretation. Of course, we believe it's the future. So the ones that reign are the ones that were beheaded and the ones that wouldn't worship the beast. I think that's what the text says. It doesn't say what this brother wants it to say, which is that the souls of the dead are living and reigning now in heaven. That's not what this text says. So there's one example for you. Okay? You understand that there are many Churches and many denominations where this view that I've just read, that is the sensible view. That's the orthodox view. My view and my objections to that view, and we've not gone to it, into it in depth, um, that's the wacko crowd. Okay? That's, that is the knuckle draggers. Okay? If you believe that, what I've just told you. And you're obviously just taking a, a, a very literalistic and wooden and unspiritual view of what the text of the Bible says. So there's one approach, okay? That's kind of what we're up against. I hope that you see that. We're going to see more of this and I'm going to explain more because this man does explain, and many other scholars that I'll quote, do try to explain their view. What you're going to see, though, is that People that don't take what I might just broadly call a literal approach to the interpretation of the Bible is that what they do is that they, they tell a story. 
And they fit different passages of Scripture and different um, contexts of Scripture into that story. And it sounds like a wonderful story. And as long as you don't examine those texts of Scripture too closely, you'll get nabbed by that story. You'll get taken in by it. Because it sounds so good. And it sounds like it glorifies God. So we're, you know... God's okay with it, and you're okay with it, everyone's okay with it. But the problem is, that's not what it says. And I don't think that believing what the Bible doesn't say is a good way of glorifying God. I think the way that God is glorified is actually believe what he says. I'm, um, I'm a nobody, okay? But if you want me to feel good about you, then believe what I say. Don't take away what, from what I say and make something else up and say, this is what he said, but this is what he meant. I do not feel glorified by that. Okay? And neither do you, do you? When somebody takes something that you've said and they reinterpret it or they twist it and you tell somebody... They said this, and you said, I didn't say that. You do not feel edified. Folks, I don't feel, I don't think, even though these are good men, I don't think God is edified by people taking his words and saying, yeah, I know he said that, but he doesn't really mean it. He really meant this. If he really meant what you're saying he meant, well, why don't you just say it? That would have been much easier. We'll cut out the middleman, okay? I think that we do cut out the middleman. Yes, we have to have Bible teachers, okay? But the Bible teacher should be able to show you in Scripture what it says. Do you want another example? You've been wondering what this is, haven't you? Okay? All right. I know we're going to do we're going to do black next week. Okay. So this is a not to scale drawing of the Earth. Okay. This is the original Earth. This is what it looked like. Okay. It was round, just like this. And um, <clears throat> so we believe, reading from the book of Genesis, that. There was a place called Eden. Okay? Yeah? It's right there, chapter 2. And Eden means, basic meaning of Eden is delight. Okay? It's a place of delight. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, you will see that the whole of Eden is not the garden. Okay? The whole of Eden is not the garden. That, in fact, Eden was a place, like a district, and God took the man, the man and he put him in the garden that he'd planted in Eden. Okay, so what you have is that you have a, uh, a place somewhere, 
Okay? And since we don't know where it was, I'm going to say it was there. And here's Eden, okay? I think Eden was probably big, a pretty big place. I mean, who knows? It's at least the size of, like, Mendocino County, I would, have thought, I would have thought. You know, fairly large. You go for a few days here, a few days there, you know, journeying through it. And God, that's because it's a garden, we'll make it green. God planted a garden in Eden. That is what it says, yes, in chapter 2. All right. Now, what do you think, here's, here's Eden, and it means delight, and here's the garden of Eden, okay? And the, by the way, the, the Hebrew there does speak about it as a kind of enclosure, Okay, because gardens tend to be enclosed. Okay, so it is an enclosure inside Eden. What about the rest of this place here? What do you think that was like? You think it was void? No, I don't think so. Well, look at look at Genesis chapter two and verse three. Well, what do you think? He rested on the seventh day. He sanctified it. Did he not? Is that what it says? He sanctified it. It was sanctified. That means it was set apart to him. Do you see that? Now, by the way, I know it says the seventh day, but don't think he just sanctified a piece of time. Okay, he sanctified a piece of time in a place, all right, which was the earth, the creation that he'd just made. Now, of this creation, it says at the end of chapter one, the last verse, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And the everything there, Okay, speaks about everything that you've just read, or if you've read chapter 1 of Genesis, everything that came before it. Now, look at verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay, got that? Look at chapter 1. And verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You see the repetition of heavens and earth. Okay, it's there in chapter 1 and it's there in chapter 2 verse 4. That is a, a, a Hebrew, well not just a Hebrew, it's a, a, it's a framing device. Okay, it's for, for a piece of literature, it's called an inclusio if you want to know what it means, uh, what, it's, what it is. An inclusio. It starts from 
with, with a framing mechanism this side and it ends with a framing mechanism uh, on, at the end of it. An inclusio is a sermon on the mount. That's an inclusio. Jesus goes up the mountain and speaks and he comes down the mountain, okay, at the end of it. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, yeah? That's an inclusio right there. Within the Sermon on the Mount, you have the Beatitudes. Blessed are they, yes? And they, that starts with, well, let's have a look at it, so you can, you can see for yourself. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that in verse 3? You see that he went up to a mountain in, in verse 1, yes? 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, it begins with the kingdom of heaven and it ends with the kingdom of heaven. You see that? That's an inclusio right there. That means that that is one set of sayings within that framework. It goes on and talks about the persecuted in verse 11 and 12. But that's not part of the blessed, okay, so much. That's not part of the beatitude. That's just magnifying a reason for the blessing. Okay, in verse 10. Do you see that? Do I need to keep going about inclusios or you're okay? Okay, so going back to Genesis, Genesis 1-1 with Genesis 2-4, again is a framing device, framed by heavens and the earth. It means the heavens and the earth. It means the whole shooting match. Okay, what the history of the, of the heavens and the earth includes verse 31 of chapter 1, everything. Do you see that? Everything that God made. Well, what's everything God made? The heavens and the earth, yes? And so the, the heavens and the earth were very good. You say, look, I know this stuff, Paul. What are you trying to, you trying to be so profound? I know this stuff. What are you trying to get at? All right. Here's my point. You didn't know it, but according to uh, a very popular teaching in scholarly Christian circles, and we'll say more about this, because um, I have a, a bee in my bonnet about it, that's why. But, uh, so we'll say more about it in, uh, in the coming weeks. But did you know that... Uh, all of this, and in fact the rest of the heavens, but we'll just focus on the earth, all of this was actually like a wilderness and evil lurked in the world out here. This was not safe. Okay? This was not a good place. Moreover, the only really good place, the only delightful place was this little place here, the Garden of, in Eden which was enclosed. And it was enclosed because if you went outside it, it wasn't safe. Okay, so not even Eden, which means delight, 
It wasn't really delightful. It was just the garden that was delightful. That is a teaching, a very popular teaching. It's taught in seminaries, it's taught in books and so on that is very popular in Christianity. Let me read uh, to you a little bit from an author who teaches that. His name's T. Desmond Alexander. And uh, he says this, this is his book uh, From Eden to the New Jerusalem. And uh, page 25 says this, If Genesis portrays the Garden of Eden as a sanctuary or temple garden, a number of things follow. So if. One, since the garden is a place where divinity and humanity enjoy each other's presence, it is appropriate that it should be a prototype for later Israelite sanctuaries, like the tabernacle and the temple. This explains why many of the decorative features of the tabernacle and temple are arboreal in nature. Two, because they met God face to face in a holy place, we may assume that Adam and Eve had a holy or priestly status. Only priests were permitted to serve within a sanctuary or temple. Three, although it is not stated, the opening chapters of Genesis imply that the boundaries of the garden will be extended to fill the whole earth as human beings are fruitful and increase in number. Greg Beale observes, quote, as Adam and Eve were to begin to rule over and subdue the earth, it is plausible to suggest that they were to extend the geographical boundaries of the Garden of Eden, extended throughout and covered uh, until, sorry, Garden until Eden, uh, extended throughout and covered the whole earth. End quote. All right, I know there's a, quite a bit there to take in. Let me kind of unpack this. Maybe you picked up, though, on a few things. The first thing that you need to pick up on is that he is saying that the Garden of Eden wasn't just a garden. It was a holy place. And it was a holy place because that's where God and Adam and Eve met together. All right? That's what made it holy. Because it was a holy or sacred space, the garden, that means that it really had the function of later temples. Because temples were sacred places, weren't they? That's where the God, you know, in the ancient world, where would the God be? He or she would be in the temple, yes? Still, Still is today, and that would be the sacred place and all around it would be not sacred. In the same way, what he's inferring here is that the Garden of Eden is the sacred space and all around it is not sacred because that's not the place where God was. Now, if they were in the garden and that's like a temple and a sacred space, well, who functions in temples? Priests do. Which mean, which means that Adam and maybe Eve too were priests. Okay? 
Now it goes further than that. It goes further than that. Uh, go to Ezekiel 28 with me. Ezekiel 28. <coughs> Look at verse 11. All right, you there? Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared in you on the day you were created. You are or were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. And it continues. Who's that talking about? Actually, no, not according to these guys. That's talking about Adam. That's talking about Adam. Okay? And the reason that they know that it's talking about Adam is because, of course, it mentions the Garden of Eden and Adam was in the Garden of Eden. But it's also intriguing because it talks about him being clothed, covered with every precious stone. And if you remember, the, the priest, particularly the high priest, had a uh, uh, an ephah, kind of breastplate, with these precious stones, 12 precious stones on it, yes? Um, how many precious stones are, are here? In verse 13. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, uh, 9. Gold if you put 10, but they're all put in the gold. So we've got 9, yes, there? The high priest had 12. But, that's okay, don't worry about the details. What matters is that Adam, remember he said that he was a priest in a sacred space. So this is a proof text, do you see, that Adam had a priest's ephod on, a a priest's breastplate. Well, it fits, doesn't it? And if it fits, then we'll have to cram everything else in too. Because this this person in Ezekiel 28 is called a cherub. What's a cherub? 
Well, where would you go in a, if, if you were reading about a cherub in Ezekiel, where would you go to find out what a cherub was? How about Ezekiel? And in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, you are told what a cherub is. And a cherub is one of those wacky, loony, crazy, uh, you know, scary, heavenly beasts that Ezekiel sees. It's not Adam. In fact, it, it's, it's, Ezekiel does something and you might, you know, want to um, not take it seriously. But if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, if you want to know what these things look like, look at verse 10. Ezekiel 1.10, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each had, of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had a face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus there were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. Each one went straight forward, and they went wherever the spirit wanted to go. Uh, look at verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightning. Does that sound like Adam? <laughs> look, at, look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. Um, notice in verse 1 what does he call these creatures cherubim yes you see the bim bit there the I am that's Hebrew for plural okay so when you see an im that's plural so one cherub would be just a, a cherub yeah now remember that they have said, and Alexander here has said, and others have said, that the character in Ezekiel 28, who was in Eden, was a cherub, and they've identified the cherub as Adam. Okay? And I'm asking, what is a cherub according to Ezekiel? Look at verse 10 of chapter 10. As for their appearance... All four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of the wheel. Oh, sorry, hold on, that's the, uh, the wheels there. Uh, look at the faces. Verse 14. Each one had four faces. Are you tracking here? Okay. We'll see if you're paying attention. The first face was the face of a Cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third face was the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. The cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Sheba. That's chapter 1. So he's saying, this 
creature is the living creature of chapter 1 and now he calls them cherubims. The face of a cherubim does not look like the face of a man. How do you know? Because it's being contrasted with the face of a man and the face of an eagle and the face of a lion. By the way, which is the animal that's taken out? Ox. Ox is taken out. Okay, The face of a cherub looks like the face of an ox. That, at least, I think is what he's hinting at. Alright? Okay. So, Adam's in the garden... And he's the cherub and he's covered in this, these, this priestly robe. Well, first of all, he's the weirdest looking human being, an ancestor you can ever imagine. It's like, how did we get to look like this if Adam looked like that? <laughs> and we talk about the fall and transformations after the fall, you know, actually... Uh, well, no, I shouldn't go there because God, <laughs> God made those creatures, but I think I'd rather prefer looking like this. Um, but uh, that's not Adam, folks. That's not Adam. Furthermore, do you see, uh, and this is Sunday school stuff, okay? Do you see a problem with having Adam wearing priest's clothes in the Garden of Eden before the fall? What's the problem? Sir? No, you're being too smart there. You're trying to, honestly, bring it down. Pretend you're six. Okay? But Adam and Eve were, thank you, they were naked, alright? So how can this be Adam in the garden, wearing clothes? Do you, yeah, you should have got that, you see, yeah. Do you see the problem? Why don't, it's a very, very bright guy, brilliant scholars, and so on, more brilliant than I am. And why don't they see it? It's because they're not looking right. Okay? It's because there is some real power if you accept this. Because one of the things that he said, remember, is that it was Adam's job as a priest in the garden to push the borders of Eden out so that it covered the face of the whole world. Do you remember that? He was quoting, it will, um, he says three, although it is not stated, the opening chapters of Genesis imply, do they? Imply that the boundaries of the garden will be extended to fill the whole earth as human beings are fruitful in an increasing number. Why would you have to increase the boundaries of the Garden of Eden when when it is situated in a place that is called delight by God and a world that God created for man which God at the end of his creative world work called very good. 
I know. Because there's something here that, that you guys don't know about these guys that if I actually went into it a little bit more, you might guess. And I, here's where I might tread on someone's toes. So if I'm treading on your toes, just, you know, bite your, bite your lip and uh, think about what I'm going to say. I've said that I believe that, the, that God means what he says in the Bible. He's perfectly well able to communicate what he means. According to this book, okay, God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. Okay? But these guys don't believe that. According to this book, there was no death before the fall of Adam. These guys don't believe that. These guys are all old earth creationists. Now, they are creationists, but they are old earth creationists. They be, believe that the earth is billions of years old. Now, if the earth is billions of years old, why would, what's the rest of the story, if you believe that? The rest of the story is because Adam's not billions of years old, okay? They believe that Adam was created maybe a few hundred thousand years ago. Well, if Adam was created a few hundred thousand years ago, what about the earth for billions of years? What was going on? Well, what's the story? Dinosaurs and lots of beasties and animals crawling around here, living and eating each other and dying. Okay? On this very good earth, we have a lot of d death, we have a lot of disease, we have a lot of rapaciousness, we have thorns and thistles. According to the Bible, when did thorns and thistles show up? After the fall. Alright. So if you believe that the earth is billions of years old, you believe that there is death and decay and danger in the earth. Do you see? So, when you interpret the creation of Adam, you, you interpret it as this is a violent place. Okay? So, God has to create a space to put Adam in, because he only put him in there about 200,000 years ago. So he clears a space and, and makes a safe space for Adam. And then Adam's role is to push out that space as he's given dominion and to spread it over the untamed, wild, disease and death-ridden earth. Now does it make sense what they're saying? There are assumptions that they're making, you see, which are going into their interpretation. Okay. Now, how, what, how does that impact the interpretation of prophecy? I'm glad you asked. You see, according to this, 
Adam, and of course we know, Adam's job was to push out the borders of the temple so that the temple, the Garden of Eden, would cover the whole earth. Okay? But he failed. That's okay. God didn't give up. He then gave the job to different people like Abraham and Noah and Israel. The nation of Israel got that job too. Okay? And they're all, all the job was the same thing, basically to push out the borders of this nation or of this special place throughout all the earth, okay, you see? And they've even got proof text because in Ezekiel, uh, sorry, in Exodus 19, remember that God commissioned Israel, he wanted them to be a kingdom of priests, yes? To, so you see how they put these little bricks together? But of course Israel failed too. So who's got the job today, you think? Who's got the job of pushing out the borders of God's kingdom today? The church, very good. Very good. So if the church has got that job today, then you have to have a view of the of prophecy, a view of the end times that matches the function of uh, the pushing out of the borders in the gospel, do you see? And quite honestly... Premillennialism doesn't fit the bill at all. Okay, because premillennialism teaches we're never going to do it, it's not going to happen, forget it, it's not about that anyway, it's about Jesus coming back and him doing it. And when he does it, he's not pushing out the borders, he's going boom, 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 bang, and that's it. Okay? It's all mine. But you see, if you've got this, then you're you're going to, and you believe that that's still happening, you're going to start interpreting the scriptures and all of those prophecies in light of this story. If Israel was commissioned to do, to push the borders of the kingdom out and failed, a new Israel is going to be commissioned to do it, and that's the church. I've just told you a just-so story made up of a couple of texts from the scripture which actually don't say what they say it says. Neither of them did. The Ezekiel 28 passage didn't and the Genesis passage didn't. But what have they done with it? They've turned it into a huge, colossal juggernaut that you can't stop. And it's going to be used to interpret the whole Bible. Talk about shaky foundations. Only an intellectual could do that. I'll read to you a little bit more here, okay, on the, on the Ezekiel thing, just so you get the logic. <clears throat> um, in Genesis 2.15, this is page 26, so from Eden to, New, to the New Jerusalem. In Genesis 2.15, the man is divinely commissioned to work and keep the garden. Interestingly, the verb keep in Hebrew, samar, may also be translated guard and protect. 
In Deuteronomy 5.12, the same verb is used to instruct the Israelites to keep or guard the sanctity of the Sabbath. In all likelihood, Adam was commissioned to keep or guard the garden so that it would remain holy. This was a normal task associated with any sanctuary. Back to the sanctuary thing again. However, by siding with the serpent, the human couple fail in their priestly duty. Beale puts it like this. Quote, when Adam failed to guard the temple by sinning and letting in a foul serpent to defile the sanctuary, he lost his priestly role and the cherubim took over the responsibility of guarding the garden temple. God stationed the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. And then he gives uh, some references here. Genesis 3.24, okay, that's a good reference, Ezekiel 28.14 and 16. Ezekiel 28. That's this King of Tyre character again. 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers, I establish you and you were holy, you were on the holy mountain of God, you walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones, by the way, if Adam, I mean, I've heard of these, these fire walkers going backwards and forwards over, you know, a few stones of fire, coals and so on. But according to this, in this interpretation, this is what Adam did 24-7. Walking up and down on coals of fire. Like, what happened to that ability as well? And why on earth would God make the ground like coals of fire? It's supposed to be good, isn't it? Anyway, sorry, verse 16. Uh, By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. When are you told that Adam was filled with violence? Here you are, evidently. And you sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from, from the midst of the fiery stones. By the way, they believe... Eden was on a mountain because, of course, all the high places, the, the, the temples were on mountains and this is implying that Eden was on a mountain. Genesis doesn't say Eden was on a mountain. And the mountain of God here may not be Eden at all. It may imply that this is the throne of God. Okay? But anyway, this is talking about a cherub who fell. And you can figure out his identity. You know, I've already, I think I figured the guy out who it is. And I don't think it's Adam. But there are lots of people that have convinced themselves that it is Adam. Something that was said here though. It says, let, let me read you this again. I want you to think. You've got to think when you, when you uh, listen to this stuff. Adam, when Adam failed to guard the temple, it doesn't say it was a temple, by sinning and letting in a foul serpent to defile the sanctuary, that was not his sin. And he is not condemned for letting the serpent in, is he? Okay? What's he doing? He's saying that 
Well, because that verb shamar can mean guard, it meant guard there, and so it was Adam's fault that that, uh, the serpent got into the garden. Genesis doesn't tell you that. It just says the serpent was there one day. Who let the serpent in? God, obviously. Who is the serpent? We read it in in, uh, Revelation 20. Who is the serpent? Satan. We're coming back to that in a minute. So he lost his priestly role. Well, I'm sorry, but he didn't have a priestly role and he didn't have any priestly clothes. And the cherubim took over the responsibility. What cherubim? Hold on a minute. I thought you said Adam was a cherub. (laughs) If Adam's a cherub, who are the cherubim (laughs) that are, are taking his place, guarding the Garden of Eden? Are they other humans? Or are they, this time, they're real cherubim? Do you see how ridiculous this gets? It hasn't, doesn't finish there either. And this, by the way, this is four lines. God stationed the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. Who from? Satan? The serpent couldn't care less about eating from the tree of life. Who's the one that, that was stopped getting to the tree of life? According to Genesis, Adam and Eve, not the serpent. Now, again, if I'd have read that to you, okay, and and just passed on, you would have think, that sounds a little strange, but you wouldn't have picked out all that wackiness, would you? But I hope that you can see that, that none of it makes any sense and none of it matches Anything that the Bible says. That's what we're up against when we uh, are talking about the interpretation of the Bible and the interpretation particularly of prophecy. Okay? There are guys and they are godly and they are brilliant but they will read what it says, but they've already got it made up in their minds what it must mean. And they will speculate and speculate and speculate and speculate. And they will, using their brilliance, they will put together these speculations and they will say, this is what the Bible teaches. And it's only if you pick it apart and say, well, hold on a minute. If, if, if Adam is a cherub and he's kicked out of the garden, who are the cherubs who are guarding and stopping him coming back in? And then it starts to, you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. The same as if, if Adam was a priest wearing priest clothes, why is he, I mean, does he take him off? And he runs around naked for a while and then, oh, it's time for to be a priest. I better put these clothes on. And if he had priest clothes, why did he dress himself in ferns? Why didn't he just nip off to the closet and get his priest clothes on and cover himself up? 
I'll tell you why. Because he didn't have any. <laughs> that was obvious, obvious from Genesis, is it not? So let's just believe what the Bible says. Okay? I gave you two examples there. I'll be giving you lots of other examples. Some of them are going to be more difficult to, to figure out. Okay? But uh, my hope is that in examining what the Bible says and just reading it and going slowly and just, just thinking about it and then thinking about uh, what other people say it really means, you'll see that actually it doesn't matter what their degrees are, it doesn't matter about their popularity, the Bible says one thing and they say something else. And there are plenty of good men that... Um, do believe that the Bible means what it says. And we'll also be um, learning from them. All right. What's the time? I can't see. Ten past. I've got a, 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 just a couple more minutes, okay? I did say that we'd do some definitions. So, I'm going to write these down and you can actually go and... Uh, you can either look at some of these yourself or you can wait until we go into more depth. Okay, this is just a very quick introduction. First of all, what we're studying here is called eschatology. Okay? Eschatology. And um, <clears throat> there are two forms of eschatology. One of them is called personal eschatology and that is what happens when you die, after you die. Okay? We're not, we're not dealing with that. Life after death. Okay? That's a great subject but we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with the end times and how the thing's going to all, how the shooting match is all going to get wrapped up. Okay? So we're talking about that eschatology. Okay? So that's the first one. <clears throat> Secondly, hermeneutics. Many of you might know what hermeneutics is. It just means interpretation, okay? Or the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, this looks like Hermes, doesn't it? Okay? Hermes was the messenger of the God, of the gods. So Herm, it, it kind of took that. There was a, a group of literature called the Hermetica back in. Uh, the ancient world, and uh, had to do with interpretation, okay? Because Hermes was the interpreter of the gods. That's where that word comes from, all right? So it's just interpretation. Three, our millennialism. Our millennialism. Okay. You see the word there, millennial? Okay, that's the millennium. The thousand years that you read about in Revelation 20 are millennialists like Anthony Hokemer, who I quoted, don't believe the thousand years is literal, but they believe we're in the millennium now. The, but you have this little thing here. This is called an alpha privative in Greek. Okay? You say, well, what's an alpha privative? Well, look. What's an atheist? A person who doesn't believe in God. What's a theist? 
Okay, so what does the what does the alpha do? The A. It negates it, do you see? So again, you've got Gnostic here from the Greek word gnosis, okay? Means a knower, okay, although the Gnostics were nutters. Okay? But but uh yes, gnosis. If you put the alpha privative on, you have agnostic. Gnostic really isn't a, a, a kind of Greek word, okay? But because you've heard of an agnostic, I used it. An agnostic says, I don't know. Okay? I don't know. So, an millennialist is somebody who says there is no millennium. And what he means by that is that there is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. That's what he means. So that's what an millennialist is. <clears throat> Four. Now, we'll be dealing a lot with millennialism, okay, because that's very popular and that's what the scholarly literature, that's what the, the seminaries basically teach. But you have post-millennial here, Post-millennialism, millennialism, millennial, oh dear me, millennialism, which beats our millennialism by being longer. And uh, the post here, what does post mean? After, okay, yeah. So this means that um, the millennium will happen, and again, they usually don't think it's a thousand years long. Uh, many post-millennialists actually believe, again, we're in the millennium now. Okay? And, but they believe that there is a millennium, in a sense, and that the, the real golden age, the real millennium, will be brought in by the church. And after the church has brought in the millennium, Jesus will come back. Okay? That's the basic idea there. We'll be saying something about post-millennialism, but not a lot. And a lot of times, our millennialists and post-millennialists will argue the same way, which is why, because our millennialism is more popular, uh, post-millennialism tends to rise and wane depending how people are doing. If they're doing well and the church seems to be you know, doing well, like in the mid-70s, then post-millennialism, you know, people jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, the kingdom's coming in, the church is, you know, going to bring the millennium in. And when the church doesn't look very good and looks weak, then people jump ship and don't tend to be post-millennial anymore. Some, some of them do. Okay, five, you have historic or covenant... Sorry about this. Pre-millennialism. Millennialism. Don't worry about this too much. The pre here means before, okay? So they believe that the millennium, that Christ will come back and then the millennium will start. Because they believe Christ will come back and he'll usher in the millennium, Many pre-millennialists believe that the millennium is a thousand years long. But not all of them. 
but they believe Jesus comes back and then you get the millennium. So we're not in the millennium now, according to pre-millennialists. But there are different sorts of premillennialists. There are historic premillennialists. These are the people that get out the newspapers or look at history and they try and say, oh, this means that. And, and uh, you know, the, um, the Turks invading, oh, sorry, the, the Arabs invading Constantinople in the 13th century. That was this. Uh, particular thing from the book of Revelation and what they do is they look at certain parts of history and they say oh this meant that and that, that meant that the Seventh Day Adventists do that okay so the Seventh Day Adventists when you get their glossy brochures on the interpretation of Daniel and Revelation what they're going to teach you if you go to them is, that, is how to match up what Daniel and Revelation say with the history of the world as selected by them and what these different things mean. It's very subjective. Covenant premillennialism um, is different. It's a different animal. That just means that uh, they're premillennial, but they're, they believe in covenant theology that, that we'll look at later on. And then what's called dispensational. Sorry for the long words. I didn't invent them. Dispensational premillennialism So that's basically the view that's being espoused by me. Again, you've got that pre. Dispensationalists, and I I don't like the term, I call myself a biblical covenantalist and to deal with the biblical covenants, but um, I'm basically dispensational. Dispensationalists believe basically that the, you know, unless, unless, you, you can't take the Bible literally, take it literally. Alright? When Jesus says, I am the door, he's obviously not talking literally, is he? Alright? So they wouldn't take that literally, although they, they also, they, they see the figure of speech behind it, yes? So they understand that there are figures of speech, but, but when he says, uh, whoever believes in me has eternal life, that's literal. Okay? And the same with the prophecies and, and so on. So that's the dispensational premillennialism. That's what we'll be, uh, be dealing with. So those are the main things. If I, I'll probably throw some other things in there, which I may have to define. But these are going to be the main um, things we'll be studying. Um, when we get to the rapture, we'll look at that a bit more. Um, We'll mainly be focusing here on our millennialism, covenant premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism, and comparing those views and their, their hermeneutics, their interpretations. And I'll be doing some of the same thing that I did earlier, quoting them and then giving you my reasons why what they're saying doesn't match up with the Bible, and then just basically, I'm, uh, obviously I'm leading you, obviously I'm guiding you, okay? So you've got to watch for that. But at the same time, you have a Bible right in front of you. And if I mean what I say, <laughs> I think I do, and God means what he says, we should come to uh, a decent uh, understanding of what that meaning is.
And that's the one I'm going to commend to you, say that you should believe. That's the one that the Bible teaches. That's the one that will tell us about the end times. All right. Any um, quick questions before we start? That all? Yes, Gary. That's a good question. Uh, what he's asking is, do these people, these old earth creationists, do they believe that there were other human beings as well as Adam and Eve? And usually the answer is no. They believe that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. However, there are certain uh, writers who these people hobnob with and these people study. Well, I study them too. People like John Walton and... Uh, folks like that, uh, Peter Enns. And by the way, I'm naming these people just for the camera and so on. Um, they do believe that there were like, you know, Cro-Magnum men walking around and that Adam came from them. Okay, that he wasn't just created. He kind of, you know, theory, he, he evolved that way. So some of these people jump on the evolution bandwagon uh, that way too. But generally that's not the case, no. All right. Well, thank you. I hope that was a helpful introduction to where we're going. Next week, we're not going to stop. We're just going to go full tilt, looking at some questions about uh, Old and New Testament and so on. So bring your Bibles. And um, uh, why don't you, if I give you some homework, let me give you some scriptures, okay, to look at. So write these down. Okay, so write down Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 40, the whole, basically the, the whole of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 61 about the first three verses. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Um, let's try Malachi chapter 3, say the first six verses, and Malachi chapter 4, very short chapter, you might as well read all of it. Um, I think that's enough. There, there are others. But read those passages, okay? And see if you can sort out the first and second comings in those passages.